Hello and welcome to Movement, a weekly podcast for South Aussie Baptists to listen and imagine together. Each fortnight, Melinda Cousins interviews a leader from within our movement and then asks them to share one of their recent sermons with us the following week. back. Last week we had the opportunity to sit down with Matt Gray and to hear a bit about what it's like to be a Baptist historian. So I thought it'd be really interesting to uh, get a sermon. What what does a Baptist historian do when they go to preach at a church? So Matt, what's the sermon that you've uh, chosen to share with us and why did you choose it? um, So I've chosen a sermon that I did for Unley Park Baptist. Um, So the pastor there, Jason Howitt, was starting a series on the Apostles' Creed. Right. And um, he asked me to come in and just talk through that, um, kind of the history side of things, because Apostle Creed is really old. Um, So there was that. But um, as well as that, he wanted to talk about why, wanted me to talk about why Baptists have sometimes had a bit of an issue. Like, you know, we... Like we don't do creeds yeah, the way that big on creeds. we're yeah. not big on creeds compared to say like if you went to an Anglican or a Lutheran church or a Catholic church or whatever, they're always doing that kind of stuff, but we don't. And so, um, yeah, I, I got to talk through that um, with them. Uh, now, full disclosure. Uh, so I did preach it at Unley Park, but there were a few technical difficulties with the recording. So I actually re-recorded this, but I did it at... Um, Tabor's Chapel, where right. I work. So. Fantastic. Is there anything else we need to know before we listen to it? It's interesting because, like, when we were talking last time, uh, I was talking about, like, the liberty of conscience stuff, mm-hmm. and that kind of dovetails into the reasons why we um, haven't done creeds that much in the past. Um, and so it's probably a good leap mm-hmm. forward after, you know, what we talked about last week. Great, looking forward to listening to it. Well, thanks for inviting me here this morning. I love talking about the Apostles' Creed. Um, For those who don't know me, I'm part of Edwardstown Baptist Church. I'm also the head of divinity at Tabor, which is a massive overreaching title. And I lecture in church history and theology. I've taught various classes on the early church over the years and I've come to really appreciate these early creeds. I have a slightly beefier one, the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed, in its original Greek hanging on my office wall. Although the Greeks have a much simpler uh, name for it, Tispitsdeos, uh, which basically just means the things we believe. And that's actually the first thing to say about these creeds. They're, they're just a quick summary of what all Christians believe. Christians have always had creeds in that sense. Uh, most New Testament scholars believe that's what Paul is doing in the passage that we read here before. Um, he's using a summary of essential Christian beliefs that the church put together from the beginning. So I'll read that out again, 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 to 7. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, 
most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Now, when Paul was converted, he says he'd received this creed. He'd been taught it. Then he'd passed it on to the Corinthians, he says, as of first importance. Creeds were very important for the early church because they helped ensure that everybody was, you know, kind of on the same page. And that's also true of the later creeds we're talking about today. In fact, uh, when we go through the Apostles' Creed in a second, you'll, you'll actually notice it's basically just kind of elaborating on some of the points made in Paul's Creed here. While it's probably not written by the Apostles themselves, the Apostles' Creed actually summarizes what they taught the early Christians. There isn't anything in it that Christians of one particular denomination would really disagree with. I mean, we're Baptists, but whether you were Baptist, Catholic, Orthodox, Presbyterian, or Anglican. Uh, in fact, either the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, which is actually the, the English way of saying the shorthand of the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed, because, like, really... Who wants to be going around saying Constantinopolitan all the time? Um, that's recited every Sunday in the vast majority of Christian churches around the world. And it's been read like that for thousands of years, recited every week. It's really only in the last 400 years or so in churches like the Baptists, the Churches of Christ and Pentecostals, that it hasn't. And that's for some interesting reading, reasons that... Uh, We'll talk about later. There's, there's nothing really that controversial in them. I mean, okay, I'm going to read out the Apostles' Creed. Have a listen to it as I read it out and you tell me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic, and Catholic here means kind of the universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. It's all, it's all pretty safe, right? It's pretty safe stuff. The only thing that might make us Baptists feel a little antsy is the Catholic bit to describe the church. But really, as I said before, um, that word Catholic is being used here in its most ancient meaning, which is not really in terms of the Catholic denomination. I, you know, there wasn't any such thing as denominations when the Apostles' Creed was written anyway. It's essentially there to remind the church of Jesus' final command to us, that we're meant to be going universally across the world. Go therefore make disciples of all nations in Matthew 28, and uh, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth in Acts 1. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. For now, let's just come back to the concept of why we do creeds at all. It might be helpful to get this out of the way, right from the bat, um, about why we Baptists haven't used creeds. I found sometimes people worry about that. Like, 
You know when a couple have a bad breakup, but you don't really know why? Was it something he did? Was it, Did she do something? I, I think it can be a bit like that here. Which side of this breakup, the Baptists or the creeds, got things wrong? You might be thinking, well, Baptists haven't used creeds. Does that mean that they're dodgy? You know, that kind of a thing. Well, we've just looked at the Apostles' Creed, and, and it seems pretty legit. So is there some hidden problem that we're missing here? You know, alternatively, you might start to worry, wait, hang on. If everybody else has been using these for thousands of years, including today, and, and we're not using them, does that, make, does that mean we're dodgy? Okay, just relax. It's really not as bad as it all sounds. My PhD was on the early Baptists and how they started in the 1600s, and I think that'll help. One of the central beliefs of the early church, the early Baptists was liberty of conscience. That meant the freedom to believe whatever you want and the freedom to express those beliefs, freely meaning with other people who believe the same thing. And this is why we insisted on adult baptism, why we became Baptists, because only adults can make a decision for themselves. Right? When Anglicans baptised every baby automatically, it was kind of like forcing them to be Christians. They didn't get to make the decision for themselves. They weren't free to make that decision. And we didn't like that. We wanted people to be free to choose. And only adults can be free to choose. Baptists felt people should have the right to believe what they wanted. We should tolerate people freely expressing their alternative opinions. Often when we hear about tolerating people with different ideas today, we think it's for more kind of relativistic, postmodern reasons. You know, kind of, we can't be sure that anything's true, so why should we insist everybody believe the same thing? See, what's interesting though about us Baptists is when we started, we wanted toleration precisely because we weren't relativist, but were absolutely convinced that Christianity is true. Because what we realised was, in reality, people will believe what they want to. Forcing them doesn't change what they believe. It just changes what they say they believe. Because in their heads, many of them may well think this whole Jesus thing is garbage. But if you force them, they'll nod their heads and say, sure, sure, whatever you say. We figured that was counterproductive from a traditional Baptist perspective, if somebody's wrong about Jesus in their heart, then they're going to hell. So you might recall this verse from Romans 10. It says, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. So you can't have one without the other. It's no good having the mouth but not having the heart. Okay, so if they're lying to me with their mouths, then I won't know that they're believing the wrong thing in their hearts. So I have no reason to convince them of what's right. But if they and we are free, then at least I'll know what they actually believe and then we can talk about it. And if I'm as right as I think I am, then as we discuss it, well, they're more likely to see that I'm right, change their belief, and then they'll be saved. On one level, this whole liberty of conscience idea seems kind of obvious now, although I have to say it's coming under more and more attack in our society these days, don't you think? Uh, 
But, but back when the Baptists started, that wasn't obvious. Everybody in England had to go to the Anglican church. They had to be baptised as a baby. They had to go every Sunday and they had to recite a creed. They had to pretend to be Christian. And the Baptists knew that the vast majority of English people didn't believe a word of what they were reciting every single week. Essentially then, liberty of conscience was just about saying, come on everyone, let's just get real here, let's be honest. Now you might be sitting there thinking, well that's interesting, but what has it got to do with the creeds? Well, forcing everybody to read the creed every week in church was seen as a key way of enforcing this kind of pretend believing. Back when the early church had invented the creeds, way back, you know, 1500 years earlier or whatever, they were something Christians, only real Christians said, defining them as different from those non-Christians around them. They weren't making non-Christians say it. I mean, they couldn't do that. Christians were a minority when um, Christianity started. But by the Baptists' time, 1500 years later, it had lost that freely, voluntarily saying it. So what the Baptists did is they switched it. They switched it to something different. And this is one of the first goes at the alternative they come up with. You can see it on the screen now. It's from 1644. And it's not called a creed. It's called the confession of faith of those churches, which are commonly called, though falsely, Anabaptist. Don't worry about the though falsely bit for now. It's a long story. It's a bad German battle from about 100 years earlier. Anyway, the point here is the magic word there. Did you pick it? Yeah. Yeah. Confession. That means you choose to say something. You confess it. Somebody else doesn't make you. Comes back to that verse, if you confess with your mouth. The great Baptist historian Leon Macbeth explains why a confession is different from a creed far better than I could ever do for you. He said, a confession affirms what a group of Baptists, large or small, believes. But a creed prescribes what members must believe. Now, I don't have time to give you a full comparison, but when you do compare what's in the Baptist confessions with what's in the creeds, guess what? They're pretty much the exact same stuff. There aren't so much differences between the confessions and the creeds, more kind of like just additions, most of which come back to the whole liberty of conscience idea. So it's, it's not like we were stopping believing any of the things in the creeds. It's just that we objected to the creeds because they were forced on people. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes in life, we do things that were brought in to solve a specific problem. But once that problem no longer exists, if we've forgotten the reason why we started doing it, we can keep on doing it for no reason at all. This is old joke historians tell about this guy whose wife was making a roast and she always chopped the roast in two before putting it in the oven. So he went to her and he went, why do you do that? And she said, I don't know, it's just something my my mum did when she made roasts. So then he went to his mother-in-law one time and and asked her, why did you do that? And she goes, actually, I don't know. I I just do it because, you know, my mum did that. So fortunately, his wife's grandmother 
was still alive. And so he, he went to her and he asked her, look, can you answer this for me? Can you solve this problem for me? Why did you chop the roast in half? And she looked at him kind of with a quizzical look on her face and she went, because it was the only way to fit it into my oven. Because like I had a really small oven and I couldn't fit the full roast in there. And like, it's a joke, but it's a parable. And the, 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 the idea of it is that in, you know, so often we do things for a reason that later on doesn't really matter because like in his case, his wife's, um, his wife's oven is big enough for the roast to fit in no problem at all. And I think that's what seems to be going on with us Baptists and the creeds. We stopped doing them for a really good reason at the time. But, come on, as if we live in a world now where we're forcing everyone in the country to recite the creed every Sunday. In a lot of ways, our day is actually more like the early church's day, way, way back, like, you know, 1900 years ago, when they wrote these things in the first place. So that comes to the question of, why did they, the early church, use creeds like the Apostles' creeds? Well, I'm going to give you... Matt Gray's top four reasons. Firstly, as a way to worship together. Now before, I just read the Apostles' Creed out to you while you just sat there. But if what I did, we don't have time to do this now, but like, if you get a chance, go home and if you believe what it says, yay, liberty of conscience, just stand and recite it out loud. It changes things when you're actually not just listening to someone else say, "I believe in God the Father, the I'm um, God the Father Almighty Creator of Heaven, etc." It changes when you're actually owning it for yourself when you're saying it. And um, if you say it together, all together, you get that that a different feel, right? It's, you're no longer just assessing it. You're owning it for yourself. You're confessing it with your mouth. And you realize in the saying of it, when you say it like with a whole church, there's a solidarity in that. You're saying it with all of these other people and you know they're on the same team as you. It's really interesting. In lots of churches, a creed is just spoken. But in some denominations, Greek Orthodox do this, it's sung and the tune they choose for it kind of adds extra meaning. I don't have time to um, uh, play one of these for you, but when the, when the Greeks sing it, um, the tune they use is, is actually quite aggressive. Um, a bit of, I believe this, come at me, bro. You know, I'll take you on. Now, why is that? Part of the reason is because Greek Christians have had to hold on to what they believe in the face of just historically vicious attack. When the Nicene Creed was decided, they had to defend that faith from heretics for years. After that, the Muslims came. And for 400 years, the entire Greek Christian population were occupied by the Muslim Turks. And so when they would sing the creed with this very defiant tune during worship, it was, it was a way of them saying, hey, hey, you are not going to take our faith away from us. Our forefathers, they said these words 
we're saying these words, our children will say these words, you have not got rid of us and you will not. Which leads into my second reason. When you say these words, you're saying words that people across well, this city right now are pretty much all saying Anglicans, Lutherans, Catholics, Orthodox, whatever. Now look, we're still going to have some differences with them, but it's nice to know that we share some really important stuff, that this is what we share. And here's the other thing. You're not just connected to Christians here and now. Christians all over the world, this week, billions of people will recite a creed. That connects you with them. And, and you're not just connected with them. These words connect you to everybody who has believed these words in their heart and confessed them with their mouths over millennia. Think of the millions and millions of different people in different languages, in different places, in different contexts, in different situations, all saying this. You're saying it with them. That, that's a powerful thing. I've got two more reasons, and they're just quick. Thirdly, it's evangelistic. Okay, now you might say, how well... Say you invite a non-Christian to church to check it out. I mean, you might be in that situation. Well, by you all reciting the creed, you're letting them know what you're on about. Okay, so like they're, they're coming to church and they're going, what is this whole Christian thing? Like, what does it actually mean? If, if I'm going to join this crew, like, what do I actually have to believe? Now, obviously, a creed can't do everything there, but as a summary of of what you, what they need to believe as a Christian, is actually pretty good. Which leads to my last reason. If they do want to become a Christian, the creed is really good training for them with that. The Apostles' Creed was often used in baptisms in the early church. People would recite it just before they went under the water. Now, the thing about baptism was, while in the New Testament you see baptisms that are done straight after you know, somebody accepts Christ, you know, Philip and the Ethiopian, hey, there's a ditch, let's just go do it there. The church very quickly decided that that wasn't a good idea. They, they stopped doing that. And that's because they realized a lot of people said they wanted to become Christians before they really knew what they were signing up for. That was especially important um, uh, given what the Roman government was doing doing to Christians at the time, kind of persecuting them. So the early Christians decided that before people got baptised, they had to go through about one to three years of training. And that training was just about making sure, hey, do you, do you really know what you're getting yourself into? Do you know what you're doing? To help with that, they used a creed. So trainees would, would learn the creed off by heart and then their mentors would talk through each line with them, kind of elaborating on what each part meant. So, okay, so it says, I believe God, Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Okay, so what does that actually mean? Let me, let me talk you through that a bit, right? This is something like probably what Paul meant when he said, well, 
you know, what I received, I passed on to you. He talks similarly with um, Timothy just before he dies. Um, in 2 Timothy 2.2, 2, he says, And the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will be qualified to teach others. Well, one of the central things that he's expecting to be taught is something like a creed. And then once they've been trained and when they get baptised, they really knew what they were saying and they could own it. And when they sang it with all the other Christians in their church every Sunday, they really believed what they were saying. And I guess in a series like this where you're going to be going through bit by bit each of the lines and unpacking what they mean, kind of like those trainees back in the early church days, you're going to have a little bit of that too. Thanks for listening to Movement today. If you enjoyed this show, then please take a second to give us five stars, tap subscribe and tell a friend. We are available wherever you get your pods. Movement is a podcast from Baptist Church's SA, hosted by Melinda Cousins and produced by Ruth Grace and Kathy Turner. We'll be back next week with another special guest.